0: I, I like the title of the the podcast. Uh, it's a very nice, very nice portmanteau.
1: And I like it when you abbreviate it because then it's like Tiger. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. before. yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Really
1: Welcome to the Geek and Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gabeauer.
2: And I'm Greg Lambert. So we learned a lot when we interview our guest, including the proper pronunciation of their names. And yes, yes, I'm I'm talking to you, Kevin Iredell. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we have Eugene Giudice from Denton's, who not only taught us the correct way to say his name, but also talks about his book covering his daily writings during the pandemic. And he shares a few passages and brings us back to certain points in time during the past 15 months.
1: So stick around for that. But now let's get to this week's Information Inspirations. Walther's Kluwer just released the results of the 2021 Future Ready Lawyers Survey, Moving Beyond the Pandemic. The survey was issued in March 2021 and includes insights from over 700 legal professionals in nine European countries and the U.S. for both law departments and law firms. Some of the key findings of interest are that firms and departments are in sync in some respects, and not at all in others. (laughs) Sounds normal. (laughs) Right? Both expect to increase their tech spend. Top changes are greater use of tech, greater collaboration and transparency between departments and firms, and increased emphasis on innovation. Firms also focused on greater specialization of legal services offered, and departments had a focus on increased use of AFAs. Big data was also a focus for both departments and firms. 75% of legal departments and 69% of firm respondents said predictive analytics will have an impact on them over the next three years. Yet neither understand these technologies very well. Greg, I sense a teaching moment here.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's there's always teachable moments here, when, especially when you talk about firms and in-house.
1: That's right. So, tech areas of focus for firms include e signature, document automation and creation, collaboration tools for contract creation, and review and workflow and cloud based services. Departments are similar, but include e management and e voting solutions. So, you know, I've actually used some of those e voting softwares for proxies, and it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Both firms and departments felt they were not prepared when it comes to key tech, client focus, And organizational and staffing issues important to their firms. So this is all the more reason to give serious thought to developing a business mode where agility in these areas is expected in order to succeed. Firms and departments continue to be at a disconnect when it comes to service, with nearly 70% of department respondents saying they expect more than their outside counsel delivers. Now, this could be its own podcast in itself, <laughs> yes. but uh, I, I, and along with a panel of experts, are going to do our very best to suggest solutions to this and other questions arising from the survey in a just one-hour seminar this Wednesday. The pod will drop after that, but I hope Walther's Schloer posts the recording so you can all check it out.
2: Yeah, I saw that you were in that. Yeah. Marlene, uh, Roger Williams Law School in Rhode Island is now requiring all of its two L's to take a course on race and the foundations of American law and that will start in the fall semester. The faculty there developed this course last summer after the George Floyd murder in order to teach students the historical underpinnings of law and regulations and the effect that it has on race in the United States. And while a number of states are working hard to ban the teaching of critical race theory, including right here in Texas, Mm -hmm. uh, the dean of Roger Williams University Law School, Gregory W. Bowman, says that this course is not about any type of indoctrination, as critics have called it. Bowman said in a Boston Globe interview that it's not indoctrination to give law students the skills and understanding they need to succeed as lawyers. That is training. Duh. He also went on to say, change is not indoctrination, change is progress. So in addition to this, uh, last week's Tuesday podcast of Make Me Smart talked with UCLA uh, law professor Cheryl Harris about UCLA's critical race studies program. Uh, So if you're interested in what critical race theory is and what it is not, I really suggest uh, checking out that episode along with looking at UCLA's program, which was actually the first, I think, the first law program on critical race theory.
1: Mm, That's really interesting. I attended a seminar put on by Foley and Lardner, Blockchain and Tackling, a legal and, biz- <laughs> a legal and business update on NTFs in sports and entertainment.
2: I can't uh, tell you the number of meetings I've been in where the CFO just says, all right, everyone, just keep blocking and tackling out there. Just keep blocking and tackling. So I'm glad somebody was able to spin that.
1: They must have been in on your meetings. Yes. <laughs> So NFTs are non-fungible tokens, so blockchain, right? So some examples you may have heard of are the NBA Top Shots, which is digital sports memorabilia. So Rare, which sells NFTs for power-ups for fantasy sports games. Uh, Watch Skins, which, as you might guess, are skins for your smartwatch. (laughs) (laughs) So you can also sell digital music and art experiences NFTs. And future areas can include licensing and sports betting, although I think actually last time I was in Vegas, I think that was actually already happening. Yeah,
2: if, uh, if it's happening, it's happening in Vegas.
1: <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so several attorneys from Foley and a couple guest speakers talked about the intersection of the emerging business models and the law. The guest speakers one an entrepreneur and one a GC for the Charlotte Hornets, which was actually one of the first sports teams to enter this space, talked about what they're doing and where they think things are going. Now, there's there's such a wealth of opportunity for law here, because there isn't a canon of law specific to this space. It's, It's just too new. And right now, everyone is relying on traditional contract law and IP principles. And the older precedent apparently doesn't always fit the new scenarios. But as NFTs move beyond the ownership model, the feeling of the group is that a unique body of law will emerge around NFTs. Mm -hmm. So some of the legal questions around NFTs are how are they categorized? How are they regulated? How are they taxed? Does IP flow out of the transaction or is the NFT IP itself? Uh, Areas NFTs touch where law will be critical will be protection of the content providers, interpretation of the commercial agreements, like the smart contracts, minting of NFTs, so how they become part of blockchain, and the regulation of the marketplace where tokens are sold and transmitted. Now, Greg, I'm already thinking of how we can use NFTs in relation to the podcast.
2: I I see the dollar signs in your eyes. Well, I have a couple of updates on the new model of law firm ownership that we've talked about over the past few months. And I just saw where a committee from the Florida Supreme Court approved an initial plan to test a regulatory sandbox similar to Utah's, which allows ownership of law firms by those who are not licensed attorneys in that state. Mm -hmm. Um, The Law Practice Innovation Laboratory Program was approved as they put it, in concept only (laughs) at this moment. And the committee will still need to hash out some of the details of the program. But it seems that they're heading in that direction. Um, And for those who are not familiar with the details that the Utah Supreme Court has set up, I highly suggest listening to Stephen Poore's latest uh, podcast of Pioneers and Pathfinders, where he talks with Lucy Ricca, the executive director of the Utah Office of Legal Services Innovation. Uh, In that podcast, she she really breaks down uh, and and explains exactly what they're doing there in Utah um, and how they are expanding the legal service services and how they are protecting customers there in Utah by monitoring and measuring the efforts of those services operating within the regulatory sandbox. So uh, it it was a really good interview, and I learned quite a bit from the discussion. And we mentioned, I think, the last time we talked about this, that if California jumped in on the sandbox that other states would follow, I may have to amend that a little bit, Marlene, and say if Florida goes in there might be a number of other states beyond those Western states who may jump in as well.
1: Yeah, I agree. We should get Lucy on the podcast. Yeah. We should do that. Okay.
2: And that's it for this week's information, inspiration.
1: When we all started working from home last March, we each did something to help us keep sane and hopefully engaged with our families, our friends, and our peers. Today's guest found a unique way of doing just that with a daily note to all of the above. After more than a year of daily inspirational emails, he put them into a book and he's here today to share some of those musings with us. We'd like to welcome Eugene Giudice, Senior Research Services Training Specialist at Denton's and the author of the recently released book, Reflections During a Pandemic, Thoughts While Sheltering in Place. Eugene, welcome to The Geek and & Review. And before you say anything, did I get it right?
0: You got it spot on. And it's right. my pleasure to be here on The Geek & Review. Well, Eugene, again, thanks thanks for
2: being here. And you, know, you, along with the rest of us, you spent the past 15 months working remotely and adjusting to the work and social environment. But Unlike the rest of us, you've decided to take this creative approach to the isolation by writing daily messages and emailing them out to a group of people sharing your thoughts along with some quotes to help you through this period. So what was your reasoning behind taking on this self-imposed task?
0: Self-imposed is indeed a, a good way of putting it. I, I like to look at it in, in, in two ways. There's the impetus. For doing this and then what informs me doing this the impetus is real practical when we went on shelter in place work from home uh we had an all uh, staff all attorney conference call here at denton's and our ceo mike mcnamara said to the attorneys reach out to your clients see how you can help them during this time but he also said to them don't just talk about business mm-hmm talk to them as human beings. How are they faring up? Do they need someone to talk to just to blow off some steam? Are they having challenges? Be there as a human being for them. Then he, he turned to the staff and said, it's important that we all find ways to stay connected during this time. Mm. And so that was the impetus for for doing these messages, for doing the coffee talks, all as a, a method to keep people connected During this pandemic, because we're either going to get through this together or we're not going to get through as individuals. So that was really the impetus for doing this. Now, I like to think that what informs me in the writing is a lot of things. I mean, the quotations themselves are great fodder and great way to bring out, you know, things for people to chew on. But also, you know, my whole life experience uh, the fact that I'm a practicing Roman Catholic, the, pra- the fact that I'm an, in- an information specialist that I spend time in consulting, even stuff like that I'm a Zionist, all of that sort of informs the work and informs the writing. And I think it really brings a richness to what you see on the printed page.
1: I really like that, you know, be there as as a human being for them. That really resonates with me. Um, so who were these messages for? Who were they directed to?
0: Well, it, it it sort of grew grew naturally. Uh, first, it was just my own team, the research team that I am a member of. Then I said, well, you know, there's some people in the office that might appreciate this, and you know, so I added people to the list. And I said, well, you know, so and so from outside the firm, or so and so that I know from Knights of Columbus would appreciate this, or rel- relatives, you know, my own family would appreciate this. So it sort of began to grow, and that's how the distribution uh, came to it's over 300 at this point. So, I mean it's primarily folks in the in the in the profession in the either the legal profession or the information profession, but it's not meant for just them it's meant for anybody who can use this and just you know people that I've met and talked to and 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 seen and they they hear about it uh, I've had individuals who are on the list, they say, "Oh, my cousin, I told them about it, and they want in." So they get on the list. So there are some people there that I have like. If they walked into my house, I would not know them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 well, besides uh, extending your social circle uh, and professional circle, what's what's kind of been the reaction that you, that you've been getting from people for over the past fifteen months? It's
0: been it's it's been positive. I would say across the board, it's been positive. Now people may not always agree with what I say, but that's great because that fosters the conversation. And what it does is, it, it, just by virtue of having the conversation, we, we stay connected as humans. I think of a person, one of my colleagues at a former firm, uh, she is very much involved in social justice. And we've, we've had back and forth about how some of the things have inspired her. And we talked about inclusion a lot. And she asked, why did you use inclusion? Why didn't you use this other word? I said, well, to use inclusion means I have to bring you in. I don't talk about toleration. Because toleration, one, there's a power dynamic. There's the tolerator and the tolerated. But then second, I can tolerate something but still keep you at arm's length. If I'm really gonna be serious about this, if I'm gonna include you, that means that you and I have to have to develop some level of contact, some level for want of a better word, of intimacy through inclusion. And so, you know, I learned from her, she learned from me, she told me to think about this other person. Uh, who's writing in, the, in a similar fashion, who has written in a similar fashion. You know, it, it, it makes for a very rich dynamic and a rich conversation.
2: Eugene, we asked you to pick a couple of passages for us to read. Would you mind taking the first one and, and reading it for sure. us?
0: Sure. The first one uh, was from April 17th of 2020. So it was pretty, pretty early in. Pretty early on. And I think it's it's significant in a couple of ways because it speaks about hope. And I think that's what I was battling against, a dearth or a paucity of hope in people during this time. And, 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 and I also say that, you know, my mother uh, passed away on the 7th of April. Now, she had been ailing for some time, so she did not die from COVID. But because of the COVID restrictions, we were only able to hold her memorial about two weeks ago. Oh. All right. So I think this was appropriate at that time. I, I don't look upon this as my, my grief project or anything like that. And it, it wasn't for me to impose that on others, on the readers saying, you know, I'm doing this out of grief. But I think this one, because it was so close to my mom's passing, was really helpful to me. So let me read it to you. It goes, it starts every, every, they all start with good morning, good afternoon. So it says, good morning, everyone. It's a snowy morning here in Chicago. Will spring ever truly arrive? It's been a tough week for many. We read in the press of job losses, and cutbacks on all fronts. And maybe we are apt to lose faith and hope in each other. Here's something to consider. Hope is like peace. It is not a gift from God. It is a gift we only can give one another. And that was said by Elie Wiesel, the Nobel laureate. And then I go on to say, we hear a lot about hope and how it comes from within. But Mr. Wiesel turns that on its head. He says that we get hope from each other. Maybe... That is the thought for the weekend. I guess this must have been a Friday. That the hope that we can carry can be contagious. And let's face it, we know a lot more about contagion than we did six weeks ago. Maybe it is our duty, for want of a better word, to carry and express hope, not so much for ourselves, but perhaps the people we come in contact with. Hope may be the tremendous categorical imperative that Immanuel Kant speaks of. And then it says, I close together with you. And spreading hope.
2: Yeah, if I'm remembering right, about mid-April was when a number of the job reports uh, started coming out and I think we lost yeah. like what 13 million jobs.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah, and, and you much. know, I think I think that was the point where I was thinking, you know, this is not going to be a 90-day wonder because when I started this, I figured, "Oh, 90 days everybody will, they'll get this sorted out well I'll go back to the office my little 90 day project will be over mm-hmm. and here we are what 18 months later and I'm still doing this <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: well mm-hmm. like like we said we we were always uh, two weeks from ending this thing but we never could <laughs> never could do it yeah. <laughs> uh.
1: it's good we sort of go back and look at these you know your discussion points you know from further back to kind of see where the mindset was then you know i was i was just thinking I was thinking back to when we did our original podcast about people talking about this pandemic before we had any idea. And I mean, the, the you know the folks that we were, were referencing, you know, they're saying, look, this is going to be big. But at that point, nobody really understood just how big it was going to be. And, and so again, I think it's important to, to kind of look back and just sort of see like, okay, where, where were we at at different points in this epidemic
0: you know, it's interesting to note that as things progress, I mean, when you look at this on the printed page, it takes about maybe maybe three quarters of a page. But as things got, you know, went on, I mean, it, the, 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 the pieces become longer. And I don't know if that's a function of experience in writing or just the depth that people like my, like we all are, are plumbing in terms of our own thought processes and asking questions about who we are and what we're doing and what, all this means but it was funny because i thought i was going to get one on a page you know in a word doc it's was keeping track of them one on a page in word doc and so yeah now it's like you know if it goes if it goes less than a half a page i'm surprised
2: <laughs> was it yeah. was it like me in college where i would expand the font and the
0: the well the, funny you should <laughs> say that i don't know if this is appropriate for this <laughs> you point you do of that conversation. too <laughs> But uh, yes, we all did that. But, you know, when I had this prepared for um, print on demand, I sent it to a guy from – has anyone ever used Fiverr? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I, the cover art for the book, Fiverr. Getting it formatted for print, Fiverr. So I sent him this document and it was at that point it was like maybe 170 180 pages. And I figured well, you know, he's going to format it up and maybe it'll be 200 pages. It comes back as a 420 page document. And I'm saying you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> so <laughs> so how many pages did it oh. Um it, it in in the in the bound volume right now it's 402. And I have a friend who said, you know, I should I should have done it in volume, sort of like as, you know, boxed like Yeah. Proofed. But uh, you know, I said, no, it's not gonna, I mean, it's not gonna be more than one volume. No, of course not. You it, know. It's yeah.
2: actually I'm I'm holding the copy of the book. It's it's very, very readable. So it's uh in and most of them are one page.
1: We know the pandemic wasn't the only major shift in the country during the past 15 months. There were also racial reckonings. How did this affect you and did it change how and what you wrote about?
0: Yes. Um it changed me because it made me realize my own to a certain extent impotency against many of these forces. I mean, some of these systems and things have been in place for generations, how we educate people, how we do policing, how we handle criminal justice. It it goes back to, you know, even before the pilgrim days and sometimes individuals like myself, who have agency, who get treated differently because of my white skin and because I'm a male, I felt quite impotent when I was confronted with this. And it's caused me to think more about this. And I think that's when I started to always repeat the phrase in the book, in the readings, or in the writings, talking about justice, compassion, and inclusion. Every, I, I think every single one of them makes a reference, circles back to justice, compassion, and inclusion, if we're we're not getting that right, I don't care how much you do policy-wise, how much you do funding-wise, if we're not more just people after this, if we're not more compassionate, if we're not more inclusive, everything else that's done is is busy work. Uh, It's just busy work.
2: Well, I know that uh, your second reading is directed about the George Floyd murder. Um, Right. Would would you mind uh, reading us that passage?
0: Sure. Uh, this was this was the one of the few, maybe the only one that I did on a Saturday. I, I made a point of uh, taking a Saturday and Sunday off from writing. But um, this one was I wrote on a Saturday. Uh, it's dated uh, May 31st, 2020. It says, good afternoon. I usually don't send these messages out on the weekend. But today I am bound in conscience because of the past few days events to say something because I remember I despair. Because I remember, I have the duty to reject despair. And that, again, is from Elie Wiesel. What was started as a just and righteous expression of frustration, anger, grief, and mourning at the extrajudicial killing of Mr. Floyd was exploited by some of them to turn into a night of arson, looting, riots, and mayhem. These people of violence do not serve well, Mr. Floyd's memory. This has given me cause to consider memories, what we remember what we forget, how we respond to what we choose to remember. Some will simply want to forget all these events. I am not sure this is helpful because if we forget history's lessons, we are doomed to repeat them. Some will want to remember them, but then respond to those memories with more bitterness, anger, and despair. I don't think that will get us anywhere either. I think Mr. Wiesel gives us a third way. He is calling us to remember but to use those memories as a catalyst to change our attitude and engender hope. He may be calling us to use those memories to find somewhere deep inside each of us and to call upon what Lincoln referred to as the better angels of our nature. This task is not without risk and pain and cannot be accomplished without the efforts and recognition of others' goodwill. No one person can change years of negative personal and institutional attitudes. We can, though, make small changes in the orbit in which we have some influence. Maybe a lesson from nature may be helpful. Diamonds are made up of carbon atoms. It only takes one atom from some other element wedged in that structure of those millions of carbon atoms in that diamond to give it a different and often more rare color. Maybe we are called to be that one atom that adds color and more extraordinary brilliance to life then i close laboring with you in changing the color of diamonds
2: well and it was a hell of a summer mm-hmm. yes so just just mm-hmm. just brought back the the memories of you know that specific time where everyone was still angry hurt confused people were were feeling like Things were getting deflected that shouldn't be, and of course, I think there was the underlying thought that this is just going to be like every other extrajudicial killing, and yeah. will eventually get swept under the rug. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm glad that this story did not end like most of the other stories did. So um, um, thanks for kind of bringing that back to me.
1: So Eugene, in addition to the daily writings, you also had what you called coffee talks mm-hmm. with some of your peers through Zoom meetings. Yep. How did you come up with that idea? And how did these work out during the pandemic?
0: Those were, again, an outgrowth of the call that Mike McNamara had made to remain connected. So what I did was I started a Zoom coffee break with, again, just the members of my research team. And it was just us. And we do not talk shop. It's like... The, the the perennial questions are what are you growing in the garden what are you got cooking on the stove what are you reading at the nightstand what are you streaming do you remember back in the day when dot 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 and then that expanded so that's and, and I do a number of them I do four of them a week so on Tuesdays is just the research team and we sit and we you know chew the fat Wednesdays is what I call the big group uh, this is primarily information professionals librarians across the country. And uh, I've gotten some folks, you know, colleagues that from overseas have joined on occasion. Uh, I even got my brother-in-law to join and he's not an information professional, but he was able to join. So it's, you know, again, it's folks who, again, to to talk about the four things, what's cooking, what are you reading, what are you streaming, that sort of thing. And then it's really interesting because some of the people on that call have a lot of institutional knowledge. So they go back in the day, like, you remember when so-and-so was president of double and when so-and-so was, and so the great stories that you hear. And it's also been a good uh, networking opportunity, not in, you know, like everybody's looking for work, but here's, here's an example. We have a student who, uh, she's working in a firm, and she comes regularly to the coffee break. And she was having some trouble at school because she couldn't get the one class that she needed. Another person who was very senior and very well-placed, he said, no, no, if you can't get the class, you go and you say, you know, tell them, you know, put together like an independent study. And she was able to do it. She put together an independent study that fulfilled the requirement and put her closer to the degree. So I feel good that I was able to connect people that way to to lend a helping hand from a from what I call a, a seasoned old hand in the trade to a younger person in the trade. So that's the Wednesday call. The Thursday call is just with a tight little circle of people. I used to sit near in the office and then Friday. I have another call with Denton's people, not necessarily from my group, but, you know, attorneys. And I like to keep my Denton's folks uh, sort of separate because if somebody wants to bitch and moan about something inside, (laughs) it's like we're keeping it in the house. And, And that spilled over into my personal life because now on Saturdays, my wife has a Zoom call with her best friends. Every Saturday, and then every other Tuesday, she has a call with some college friends, so we've been able to use the technology to keep people connected, and they've said over and over again, people on the calls have said, "This has been a godsend. One of the vendors who, who comes on the call and she's upset when she misses the call, I, I was making a comment about how I, when, you know I might be dialing down the email. She says, "But don't, call, don't cancel the calls. I'll take <laughs> it over if you want me to take it over." that kind of stuff. So it, it's filling a need. It's building community and that's the important thing.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny cuz just talking to people about you know, I mean a lot of a lot of folks did like Zoom calls and things like that to try and stay connected and and what I seem to hear all the time is is that people really got to know one another better. I mean, you're sure. talking about sort of, you know, what are you cooking? You know, what are you streaming? And, and you know, people really got to learn more about one another um, probably more than they would have if, if this hadn't happened, you know, because people were more willing to open
0: up. Yeah,
2: what they picked as their background wallpaper. So. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> That's always good for a few laughs.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad Tiger
0: King kind of went away. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, that was a very, that engendered some very interesting discussions about Tiger King. Yes.
1: (laughs) I forgot all about Tiger King. See, it it,
0: was forgettable, let's face it. (laughs) Yes, yes.
1: Maybe we should forget about that. So, Eugene, I know you have a third passage that you want to share with us. um, So, you know, please, please do.
0: This one was from January 7th of this year, and uh, it did not go unnoticed what happened on January 6th. And so this one was sort of, in response to that, it was my attempt to make a little bit of sense out of what happened on the 6th of January. And it starts, good morning. I have tried not to be politically partisan in these daily messages, but I cannot let the events that occurred yesterday in Washington, D.C. pass without comment. Those who would make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. And that was from President Kennedy. Every election that cycle, we have a peaceful revolution. People are elected or retained in office based on how they have worked for the electorate. Yesterday, we saw the effect of those who would thwart that peaceful revolution. I am afraid that those who would condone or in any way justify these actions are, as Winston Churchill put it, riding to and fro upon tigers from which they dare not dismount. The question for all of us now is how to continue the peaceful revolutions that President Kennedy spoke of. Each day, I would submit that each of us has a chance to create a peaceful revolution, not a revolution based on arms or coercion, but a revolution from inside of us. We can daily choose to change, to reject the attitudes and actions that would foster division, exclusion, injustice, and mercilessness. The word revolution comes from the root word to revolve, meaning to move in a circle around a central axis. What are we going to have for our central axis? We have a choice. We can either have an axis that states, I got mine, or an axis based on justice, compassion, and inclusion. As we look back on yesterday's events in the nation's capital, it may be worth reflecting on something that President Kennedy's brother said. What has violence ever accomplished? What has it ever created? No martyr's cause has ever been stilled by an assassin's bullet. No wrongs have ever been righted by riots and civil disorder. A sniper is only a coward, not a hero. And an uncontrollable mob is the voice of madness, not the voice of the people. And that was from Robert Kennedy. The revolution from within is very much taking the long view of history. This sort of revolution takes time and it is not without setbacks. But if we want to leave any sort of legacy for future generations to build on, wouldn't it be better to leave them a foundation of those quiet interior revolutions that has caused each of us in some way to turn away from selfishness and to turn to care and compassion for others? What will be your personal peaceful revolution today? Walking with you as we plan the revolution from within. And... and one thing, though, I, I want to uh, also highlight is something else that really informed me is um, Victor Frankl speaks about choices. We all have choices to make, and, and 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 I I use these writings to challenge others, but mainly to challenge myself. What a choice do I have now to make? That's why th- this has been such a, an important thing for me to doing the writing because it's not just for like folks who are reading it. I have changed inside. This has been. A part of exploration and growth for myself, I need to start thinking about and doing these things because I would be the ultimate hypocrite if I said, okay, you know, here's a great, you know, list of things and, you know, start, you know, reading and doing and thinking this way. And then I, you know, then, then I go back to, well, I got mine, you know, <laughs> so it's been helpful for me. Maybe I'm getting more out of it than than maybe other people. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, the
2: writings in your book, The Reflections During a Pandemic, it begins back in March of 2020, and it mm-hmm. ends in March of 2021. Right. But I, but I know, because I get the emails, that you're still adding to the writings now. So what, yes. have, you, what have you been
0: writing about since uh, since the book came out? I, th- I think I've been more focused. I've been more post-pandemic-oriented. Fu- uh, I've been thinking more about not getting back to normal because there was a lot wrong with the old normal. But now we have an opportunity to, again, to build and create something new and different. So it's sort of forward-looking. I'm not doing them five days a week. Five days a week in anything is a real, yeah. it's a grind. It's a real grind. Uh, so I do them on Monday, Tuesdays, and Fridays. Uh, and the, the the thinking is that maybe around Labor Day, I'll turn the project down and sort of stop writing and then assemble a second volume with everything. So from, it would be from March of last year all the way through Labor Day or, you know, September of this year. That'll be an interesting sized book. I going <laughs> to not. Gonna
1: say, I was going to say, you sure you don't want to do volume two? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well,
2: Eugene Judice. I want to thank you very much for coming onto the show and sharing these experiences uh, and the writings with us. So uh, b- before we let you go,
0: where can the listeners find your book? Uh, the book is available on amazon.com as a print on demand and also an ebook. Uh, the easiest way to find it would be to Google my full name, Eugene Michael Judice, because if you don't, you might end up with that woman from, Real Housewives of New mm, Jersey, <laughs> who is not related to me, her or her husband are not related to me. I am going on record as saying that. Marlene, um, are they related to you? <laughs> no. Um, it's um, and it's also available on the Barnes and Noble page as both an ebook and a print-on-demand book, and hopefully it'll be it'll be found in public libraries. I'm trying to get it into the. Thanks. college libraries where I went to school. It's 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 in the public library at the Melrose Park Public Library where I served as a trustee about 10,000 years ago. Uh, I'm working to get it into the Chicago Public Library. So hopefully it'll be in a library near you. Good luck. Well, thanks. Thanks again. Thank Eugenia. you. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Marlene.
2: Well, Marlene, I know the 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 number one thing that I enjoyed about this was actually learning how to say Eugene's name properly. Yeah, because
1: so. we we neither one of us this is this is like the second case where we have been saying it the wrong way for a long time.
2: For a long time, so mm-hmm. just have to remember it rhymes with fun to say. Yep, fun to say, <laughs> to say. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, you know, it was it it was really interesting to look back, you know, and take this snapshot of time and, and try to think back, okay, this is, gosh, this was about when this happened. And this is, you know, obviously there were big, you know, the, the George Floyd murder and the Capitol uh, insurrection, obviously two big placeholders in time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's, there's a number of stories in here that, that kind of take you back and remember some of the little things uh, that were going on.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, you, you, I think as you sort of go through these situations, you know, you you forget some of those small things or you forget how it was in the beginning as opposed to, you know, sort of where we're at now. And so I think that was a good reflection. And, you know, and I have to say, I mean, a lot of what he was writing, I mean, it was very, you know, it was very thought provoking. It was very inspiring. I mean, I'm I'm feeling like, okay, I really need to to dig into this a little more and just, you know, just for my own process um, of changing. So uh, we thank Eugene very much for for, uh, coming on the show. Yep. Before we go, we want to remind listeners to take the time to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rate and review us as well. If you have comments about today's show or suggestions for a future show, you can reach us on Twitter at at or at Glambert, or you can call the Geek & Review hotline at 713-487-7270. Or email us at geekandreviewpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David Desica. Thank you, Jerry.
2: Thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene and I will talk to you later.
1: Bye-bye.